Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today's podcast dives into the topic of fixed income investing and Fidelity's multi-sector funds with portfolio managers Jeff Moore and Michael Blage. Jeff has been managing portfolios for Fidelity since 2000, and Michael has been with Fidelity since 2005. They now co-manage a number of strategies together, including Fidelity Tactical Credit Fund, Fidelity Global Core Plus Bond ETF, Fidelity Multi-Sector Bond Fund, to name a few. Today, they speak with host Pat Bolland for a discussion recorded in front of a live audience at our December Focus 2022 event for financial advisors. Jeff and Michael unpack today's challenging fixed income environment, including where they are seeing opportunities and how central bank moves may impact the bond market. Today's podcast was recorded on November 8th, 2022. And as I noted, this was recorded in front of a live audience, so you may hear a slide or two being referenced. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Walk me through this past year. It's been a difficult one, I think, for the fixed income marketplace, but how difficult? Well, go back a year ago, we had interest rates near zero. So we had the Fed had taken things to the lower bound of zero, and we, we were in the mat, midst of amazing QE, and heck, we were doing massive fiscal stimulus. We were actually helicopter money. We were sending people checks in the mail from the IRS. That's the kind of stuff we had going on a year ago. And at some point, the Fed goes, oopsie, and we need to get back on track. And so the Fed had to move very quickly to sort of unwind a lot of this excess liquidity that was in the system. And we did it all in a 12-month period, right? This is a tough 12-month period. So, you know, you had the, the bond market draw down double digits, which is pretty unique in history. But it came on the back of double-digit total returns in the previous couple of years, partly based on really, you know, at the end, we probably shouldn't have had emergency liquidity policy, emergency fiscal policy in 2021. We were probably, you know, a year too late. Okay. And as I understand it, the last month has been extremely volatile. What's that about? You know, we're at the point right now where the market has pivoted. Okay. The Fed hasn't. But the market has. The market's decided that they can see a path to low inflation in the next two, three years. So if you look at the break-evens from inflation-protected bonds, something Chair, Chair Powell has identified, if you look at those break-evens, they're sort of sub-2% all the way out the yield curve, or sub-2%, sub-2.5%. And so the Fed's saying we're at 8 now in inflation. The market's calling for 2.5%. So the market's saying as long as we see a path to that 2.5%, we're good to go. And I think that's where the Fed will get to in a few more months, but they're in abundance of caution, going to continue with their own rate hikes for a while. But I think the market is saying, you know what, we see a path to two and a half year, partly because we're not doing any big fiscal policy. We have you know, divided government in the U.S. again. We have interest rates higher. They're doing QT, not QE. So all the things that led to this big piece, the surge, are probably behind us including things like the supply shock, the war in Ukraine is making its way through the system. So I think that the market's saying, yeah, we're ready, we pivoted, and the Fed said we're going to be a little bit 
longer. Okay, so Mike, what I'm hearing from, from Jeff is that we've passed the point of peak negativity. Is that the case, you think? I think it is the case. Um, the market certainly has passed the uh, point of peak negativity. The readings, if you look at the bearish sentiment, the equity markets, they're still pretty negative. I think people are still expecting you know, profit margins to roll over. They're looking at the earnings picture. There's still a lot of fear. If you look at kind of the fear and greed indices, there's still a lot of fear, but they have come up off the bottom. The recent rally that you just talked about has driven kind of financial conditions from tight monetary and financial conditions to back to the easy side. So there is some kind of, this is a bit of a relief rally. And part of that, I think, is because the market expects that peak negativity is is behind us. And, and, the, and you know, if you want to talk a little bit about the Fed, a little bit more about the Fed, you remember the Fed got really behind the curve. You know, in 2021, they probably should have been moving much sooner than they were. Um, but they didn't want to raise rates as they were still expanding the balance sheet and easing in a quantitative, you know, through quantitative uh, easing. So they didn't. They also thought that inflation was transitory at the time. And I remember Powell in 2020 said, after he cut, as Jeff said, after they cut rates to zero, um, he said, but we can't do it alone with monetary policy. We need fiscal stimulus. And boy, did they get fiscal stimulus. Okay. And that's still playing out. So I also think that it's not only monetary policy that, you know, needs to slow the economy, not just in the Fed funds rate or the short term rates, um, but also the longer term rates. Typically, 3% has been a bit of a, a governor on the U.S. economy. So we get to 3%, the economy tends to slow. That's been the case since the GFC, uh, maybe even a little bit before that. Now we've gotten to four, a little bit over 4%, didn't last very long. Okay. And then, as Jeff said, the market's pivoted. You know, the Fed hasn't. We've been using an analogy. And for those of you that get our, our two-pager, you remember two months ago, we said, basically, as goes inflation, so goes the Fed. And as goes the Fed, so go the markets. Um, so we're waiting for inflation to roll over. Last month, we talked about the market saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Think about a car ride. Chair Powell's driving the car. The market is the kids in the back. Uh, and typically the refrain is, we're almost there, but Chair Powell and the rest of the FOMC members were saying, we're not even close. We're not even close. We'll get there when we get there. Um, however, Chair Powell just drove the car off the exit. He's slowing down from 75 to 50. The kids in the back are getting excited. That's the market, and that's the pivot that Jeff's talking about. The problem is, we've got back roads. We don't know how long we're going to be on back roads before we get to our destination. They can be twisty and turny, and it can be a little bit uh, a little bit bumpy. There's probably going to be some stoplights and stop and go. Okay, so what I'm hearing from both of you is that the Fed uh, misdrove the car, if you will, going into this thing. What makes you comfortable that they're driving it right out? Well, I think they left late, <laughs> uh, and they did what they could, and they had to they had to move as quickly as they could to get the short-term rates up. Um, and they had to talk in a way, call it qualitative tightening. They have to talk in a way that they, they, that needs to slow the economy. But now, like where Powell said they need fiscal stimulus to help, uh, with the recovery, they also need that fiscal, that excess savings to dwindle. And you heard both J Jamie Dimon and Brian Moynihan this week talking about a trillion and a half or so in excess savings still in the system that needs to come down. That probably doesn't happen until mid year next year. So that's one of the things that we're watching. Okay. Is this, uh, and we talked, Jeff talked about the uh, turning point. Do you think, Mike, that this is a turning point, a good time to get into fixed income? I think this is actually a great time to get into fixed income. Yields are, yields are still high, even though we've had the rally that you mentioned 
uh, over the last four to six weeks, the fixed income yields across the curve are still, are still very high. And the products that we manage in Canada uh, have yields that we really haven't seen really in the last 10 years or so. Okay, so if it's an appropriate time, Jeff, how do we do it? How, what approach should an investor take? Well, I, th I think the n number one thing is to go buy some bonds. And, and I think the bonds have the highest expected return in the next couple of years. Why is that? We have a lot of yield. You're probably compensated now as well as you've been compensated since the 1990s. So if you don't like the bond market now, my sense is you never will. So, and that's cool. You don't have to like the bond market, but the bond market is going to give the stock market a run for its money because we have a lot of yield and we have so many opportunities for compression in that yield curve and in the spread curves in the next one and two years. And remember, 2019, the market did 10%. In 20, it did 10%, the bond market. And those started out with yields way below where we are today. So just keep that in the back of your mind that when the Fed is kind of done, whenever that is, and when we think you know inflation looks like it's heading back to that 2.5%, which the market says it'll be done and dusted in two and a half years, you got to get after it now because this is the high total return part of the market for bonds. Okay, but uh, through that whole thing, you said buy bonds. You didn't talk about what kind of bonds, credit quality or anything like that. Good bonds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think what you should do is you should buy our portfolios. <laughs> okay, you can do it yourself if you want, whatever. Um, no, you should. I think you should buy diversification. And I wouldn't buy just floating rate bonds. Floating rate has done great this year, right? As the Fed's repriced, the NPV of everything has fallen, right? And so we've had this drawdown in bonds. This is the time when the hard part for you as an investor is you have reinvestment risk. I'm not so worried about um, default risk in the market. It's reinvestment risk. It's this view that can rates stay at these levels two, three, four, five years out in the face of what I consider terrible demographics globally. Terribly. Like, we're looking at China having population decline right now. By 2030, China's population could fall by 30 million people a year. A year. The whole country of Canada goes away in China every year. How do you get fast GDP growth in that world? You don't, right? GDP is the number of workers, output per person. If this is going down, it's a headwind. And so I think what you need to do is go buy some term bonds now. You have to find a way to convince yourself to go buy fives, sevens, tens in the market. And I would buy some credit along with that. Companies that you think have some see over their horizon ability in the revenue. So quality Canadian companies, American companies in that five to seven, 10 year space where you're not worried about a small recession. It would, it would take a knockdown, drag out recession. And we can talk about why this is the anti-2008 for the U.S. We can talk about that next or later on today. But for now, I would buy investment-grade bonds. And I wouldn't even buy, mind buying some high yield because high yield right now doesn't have a lot of defaults. Uh, we're not calling for defaults in, in a big way. And the kind of defaults you get in a rate hiking cycle are the kind that a good MBA can help you with, which is to say your company has to reset its interest rate costs so their operating profit falls too much. So that's just a calculation. What interest rate can you handle as a company? Those are easy defaults to handle, right? Those are the kind that you term out the debt, you move it, move it from three years to 10 years. Those are the simple defaults. So I'm comfortable with high yield as well because I think high yield's got control of its destiny mm. and it's got so much yield, it's, it can power over top of any bad outcomes. But there's still a lot of question marks. Why wouldn't I just buy a GIC that's yielding whatever, three and a half, four percent, or whatever the number is, and wait. Well, the time to buy GICs, in my mind, 
is when rates are zero and there's no capital gains left. Then you buy a GIC. But to buy a GIC today for 3% when the bond market, you know, in the last like six weeks has done 6% and, and we're just getting started potentially, especially if you think anywhere, anywhere close to a rollover inflation, you didn't think inflation just rolls over from base effects that we had, you know, it's harder and harder to beat last year's comp, right? In that world, it's hard for me to want to lock in a short rate. That'll be the most expensive fees you've ever paid in your life. Hmm. Good point. Okay, I, uh, I do want to talk about recession and macro questions as well. Uh, but before we do that, Mike, I think we've got a chart of your multi-sectors. Yeah, like Jeff said, floating rate. We had almost 30% of the portfolio in floating rate securities. I mean, that was the biggest. The you know, floating rate securities are up, both loans and, and AAA, AA CLOs are actually have a positive return on the year in a market where the investment grade bond market's down, was down almost 16%, now we're down 11% or so and change. Um, so floating rate was a big big benefit in terms of relative performance for, for the portfolios. Um, and then we, what we tried to do was diversify the portfolio. So we, again, using our, our credit research and our analysts, we always try to skew the portfolio to be high beta in a rally, low beta in the sell-off. So our security selection, step four in our process that have heard us talk about our five-step process before, step four was also beneficial. But from an asset allocation perspective, owning very short-term or floating rate securities, being in the belly of the curve in credit if we weren't in floating rate was a, was a big benefit. Okay, so let's talk about these multi-sector funds and how that view is reflected in those funds. So, we, you know, real quick, we've got, since we've got this slide up here, just a product overview in, in two minutes, we, we managed two, uh, five portfolios, five funds in Canada. The two on the left are investment grade portfolios. Think about those as high, better diversifiers, higher quality, um, you know, a little more exposure to interest rates. So that better diversifier to your equity portfolios in most environments. Of course, in the, you know, in 2022, uh, diversification hasn't worked. There's really been nowhere to hide. But in most normal environments, and we will be in a normal environment again, the investment grade funds will be better diversifiers. They're capped at 25% in below investment grade securities. Currently, we've got about 15%. So you know, we are still pretty defensively positioned in the, in the funds. So 15% with a cap of 25% in the investment grade products. Uh, the multi-sector bond and the Global Core Plus product have a limit of 70% in high yield. Currently, we're at 30%. So again, we've got lots of room to add risk. If we get to the point where we think a recession is fully priced in or the default cycle starts to price in. And we can talk more about sectors, but currently, we, we, I just saw a report from our analysts this morning, given the current level of high yield spreads, that implies a 2.5% default rate. So even though we think default rates will remain low, because as Jeff said, there's really nothing to default to over the next few years, 2.5% seems kind of fully valued for where we are. So I think it's fine. I think there are securities within high yield that make sense. That kind of explains the 30% positioning relative to you know, our kind of max overweight. We would think about being in the 55% range. And then finally, tactical credit um, is a much more higher beta product. It's, it's got more drawdown risk, but it's going to have more yield. It's basically a full credit product, very little in the way of uh, treasury securities or government securities for diversification benefit, primarily loans, uh, high yield bonds, and investment grade uh, credit. So just in terms of yield on these products right now, uh, think about the investment grade funds yielding about 6%. This is gross. The multi-sector and global core plus funds yielding about 7% and tactical credits about 8% today. 
okay, but you run the range of uh, whatever, 75% investment grade to zero across that. How do you go through the process of stress testing, Jeff? Well, so we have in step three of our five-step process is our asset allocation step. And this is the step where Stacy, our hotshot quant, takes the portfolios and runs the portfolios that we built through everything that's happened in history that we can think of that's relevant and um, some canned scenarios like what if rates go up another 100 base points, what if the stock market draws down 20%, 30%, those kind of things. And the goal of stress testing is to give our clients as many wins as possible and as many draws. Because, you know, stuff can happen it, out of the blue. Think about this year. None of us expected this kind of rate hikes and this much of a drawdown. But if you look at what's happened this year, because of the stress test, we were positioned in a way that we bounced back. So is, you know, the bond market got to negative 16% year to date. We're negative eight and we're rolling. And we still have 7% yield mm. because the stress test that Stacy helps, helps take the edges off the portfolio. Make sure that you don't have any one thing you go, this is the most, you know, I have too much of that one bad thing, right? You have more diversification. And so the stress tests, I think, are critical because as PMs, you should expect that we're wrong a lot. And so her job is to help us understand what wrong means. And, if, and where it could come from. And where it could come from. You got it. Well, wow, interesting. Uh, okay, we have a questions coming in from the app uh, uh, having to do with stress testing, but also how do spreads, so give us historical context, how do spreads compare right now to historical norms, especially within those portfolios? Sure, uh, spreads are in the 50th percentile. They're fair. We're at the median right now, and that's you know in from, again, with the recent rally and the CPI print uh, last month came in, at the low end of the range, and there's the perceived Fed pivot, and rates rallied, spreads rallied, equities rallied. Spreads were at the in the 80th percentile, and this is for investment grade spreads and high yield. Both uh, sectors are now in the 50th percentile, and that's really over the period since the GFC. So we're fair, things are okay, and again, that means there's opportunity in the market, but they're they're certainly not cheap. There's not a beta opportunity within the spread sectors right now. When spreads get to the 90th percentile or cheaper, like they did in March 2020, for example, in the investment grade market, that's a great beta opportunity, and that's when we'll make big asset allocation decisions. Yeah, can I, like, I think there's this notion that 2008 is just around the corner. We're tracking for 2008. We may be on the stock market side. I don't have any view on that side, but I will say this. If you think about what led to 08 being so horrible, a lot of it was 04 to 06, Chair Greenspan raises rates about 300 basis points and breaks the back of subprime mortgages, mostly the crazy lending that was happening in California, Texas, and Florida, right? That happens in the marketplace. And what happened for a lot of those investors, they either shouldn't have got a loan, and they did, or worse, they were on adjustable rate mortgages, arms, right? And so fast forward to today, post 08, under the guys that never let a good crisis go to waste, the Fed didn't and, and stuff like that, 99% of Americans are in fixed rate mortgages, 15 or 30 year. So what's just happened here with this rate rise is an injection of equity into the households of America. It's not a crisis, it's just the opposite. They've just got money. They got this two and five eighths mortgage for 30 years still, 15 years left to go or 20, and now they, instead of paying down their mortgage, they're gonna go buy government bonds for a positive carry. How great is that? So this is the anti-08 for households in the US. So if you're thinking, oh, houses, the household market's gonna roll over, yeah, housing prices may roll over. I don't have much sense in that. But there's no crisis coming because we just injected liquidity into homeowners. 
Now compare this to rest of the world. For the first time, I would argue with you, the danger is rest of the world. It's Canada, short rate resets. England, Germany, Sweden, the, where especially the higher your LTV and the more you reset, and that short-term reset can be a real pain, especially for corners of the market. It's not for every Canadian household. It's like that 10%, right? It's always the tail. And so in the U.S., you don't have the tail. So I would argue the reason spreads are fine in the market is because there's no obvious stress in the marketplace, certainly not in the United States here, other than for people or entities that are resetting their interest rate in the next one, six, 12 months. They may be starting to feel stress, but the rest of, of the market's kind of going, yeah, whatever. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't realize that so many Americans had locked in. And well, they had to, probably we don't offer the, the arms anymore. Good. You know, they're Fair. dangerous. But that would explain why the consumer is still growing in the United States. Does that mean well, that we might not see that recession. Well, in, in general, the other part of this, right, is we have this demographic story, right, in the world that's so horrible in China, Asia, continental Europe, where they have population decline and labor force decline. We get a little taste of labor force decline in Canada and the U.S., and our labor forces are still growing. Let's, let's keep that. We've just had a little taste of it. And so what do companies do? They hoard capital. And so my instinct is for everyone in this room, I bet you have line of sight on your job for the next 12 months, right? So to get a real knockdown drag out recession where you stop flying to Orlando and hanging out at Disney and spending whatever, whatever they're charging, it went, for that to happen, you have to lose line of sight on your job or your spouse does, right? And in that world, you go, you may have to pull back some. But for now, we're all feeling like, yeah, we've got a job and if this one doesn't work out, I'll take the one over there. So. I think we are in a world where demographics have hit us as well. We're slowing our labor force growth. And so there's a calmness for all of us in the marketplace. Wow. Okay, that's the history lesson. Let's move on to the future. Where are you looking? What sectors? We'll start there. First, uh, rates. Rates, again, have, you know, as of a month ago when we were, we were you know, thinking about where we want to be, we utilize our five-step process. U.S. Treasury rates, Government of Canada, Primarily North America, the base rate has, has increased to the point where duration for the first time in a long time is really interesting. Yeah. And Jeff mentioned investment grade credit being an interesting place, mostly because the base rate is high. Yeah. Again, we talk yeah. about spreads being fair, spreads being at the median, but the total return prospects from investment grade credit having been the worst performing sector in, in 2022 up until about six weeks ago. Um, it's still it's still down a lot, but it's recovered nicely because it's got two things. One, exposure to uh, spreads, which got to the cheap end of fare, I would say, but mostly because it's got a lot of exposure to interest rates, yeah. and interest rates have have fallen. So so again, duration is more attractive. We're in the kind of recently in the hundredth percentile to go back to the you know where we are in terms of uh, history yields on our benchmarks, yields on our funds. We're in the 100th percentile over history uh, with spreads in the 50th percentile. Again, that's driven by rates. So we, we're always thinking about from a macro perspective, step one, two, and three in our process, how much risk do we want to take? Where do we want to take it? And right now, credit looks okay. Uh, duration risk looks like the place to be for us. Okay, so how long have you been adding duration? And then how long do you perceive that you will continue to do that? So we've been adding duration. As, you know, we're gradual contrarians. So you know, as sectors or rates or uh, pockets of the market get beat up, 
we've got support through fundamental analysis, we lean into those sectors. So we've been adding duration. If we think about our, our portfolio, we were probably a short, the shortest duration that we had across the funds was you know, four and a half years. We went to five and five and a half years of duration. We're still somewhat short of our benchmark, the benchmark being the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index. But that is, that's a relatively long benchmark. And the reason we stay short is to really manage the volatility of the product. Because we are, we are trying to generate strong risk-adjusted returns. We do have an eye on uh, like a sharp ratio. So we're not, we're not yet getting long duration but the composition of the portfolio means we've got more interest rate sensitivity really than our duration would even imply. Hmm. Okay, so duration is your first priority. Sectors, do you care? Yeah, there's some, there's some um, decent sectors out, out there. I don't mind high yield, especially double Bs. High yield double Bs, those are, these are companies in general that are double B because their accounting staff think this is the best way to generate shareholder value. Right? They, this is how much leverage they need to maximize shareholder returns. Those double B companies can be almost any, any rating they want. So think, I'd look at Kraft Heinz as a great example. Single A company, cut to junk, then Warren Buffett gets on the board and it's going back to investment grade and it is investment grade. Kraft Heinz can be any rating it wants. It's just what is it the best for its shareholders to maximize return? In the double B space, which I, that's like 20% of our below investment grade, the bulk of it, these companies can be investment grade if they put their back into it. So if it became necessary, there's a deep recession, these double Bs will put their back into it, prioritize cash flows to pay down debt, and get themselves to the rating they need, right? So the, the stuff that is scary for clients, I think, in, in below investment rate, is something that's resetting its interest rate coupon right now really fast. So bank loans are a little bit scarier in a way, because most companies in the bank loan space only have one or two borrowings, right? And they have lots of flexibility to get bank lines and other things. And their challenge in the bank loan space will be that they're going to reset their interest rates higher and they have to decide how they're going to term out their debt to get a lower rate. So keep that in mind. But otherwise, I'm feeling pretty good about below investment grade. Emerging markets is always a concern to me. I think there's a lot of countries that you have to be careful around in the world that just have too much leverage, too much social unrest. Just look at happened to Peru the other day. There's a lot going on. There's a handful of countries that we like a lot. Mike and I have added some local currency in South America in one country. We'd like that a lot. That's going to work for us. It's yielding 12.5%. Call me crazy. What happened in Peru? I have no idea. Just a little social unrest. Oh. Uh, it's a, so basically, the new group wants to be Fujimori Light again, which is a, just massively socialist, corrupt, blah, 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 blah. You've seen the movie. Yeah. So we don't have any there. Right. You stay away from that? Yeah. Venezuela? Yeah, Veni. You stay away from Veni as well. Right. How are you playing South America then? Just straight currency? Uh, yeah, we like to play, if we can, we would love to buy countries that have big current account surpluses, so they're bankers to the world. So, you know, our favorite countries right now are Mexico and Brazil, now that, they, you know, Lulu's taken over. The good news is the House and the Senate in, in Brazil are divided, so it's not like he has that much power. He can't do anything by himself. So we like that kind of story a lot. We would like to buy some Asian credits. They still don't have enough yield. It's just not that compelling. And as soon as your yields are 3 4 5%, now you're competing with U.S. Treasuries, really great corporations in the U.S., and, and it doesn't make sense. Mm. Europe? Uh, we like Europe to an extent. Be careful. That interest rate reset is really large. And think about, especially Germany, scares me the most in the sense that they had negative interest rates. And negative interest rates can lead to bad behavior by mistake by companies and people, where you buy too much house, 
because you have a negative interest rate, and now you have a small positive rate and you're underwater and you have reset risk and because of the arms. But even, I would say, real estate companies in continental Europe that grew fast in the last five years probably grew fast because rates were negative and not because they were getting proper revenue signals. Mm. You may have answered this. Do you actively manage currency within your funds? Yes, but we're very careful on currency risk. Currency volatility is like three, four times higher than what we're trying to do in the portfolio. So be careful with currency risk. We, we will take it as an alpha trade, which is to say we'll diversify it. We'll do half percent, one percent trades where we think there's a high total return coming for clients and where our analyst feels like they can underwrite the story. We've only got two, two percent or so in unhedged currency. And again, yeah. the European credit exposure that, that Jeff was just talking about, that's all hedged. Yeah. That's all hedged. We're not taking European credit risk at this point. And just now, since we were talking about, you know, uh, the value of spreads and where spreads are relative to history, again, European spreads were pricing in a recession and, you know, appropriately so. Mm-hmm. But European credit spreads were in the 90 to the 95th percentile when U.S. credit spreads were in the 80th. European credit has done extraordinarily well, again, over the last four to six weeks, tightening much more than the U.S. So Europe was actually pricing in a worst economic scenario. Yep and has started to recover as the market has pivoted. Okay, sticking with Europe just for a second, because we've covered arms and all that kind of jazz, and we didn't touch on geopolitics. You touched on Russia and Ukraine. In past presentations, it's obviously geopolitical risk at play as well in Europe. Either one of you want to tackle that? Well, with Russia-Ukraine, that was an exogenous shock. And if you were you're modeling it up, and that's what our quants do, they, would, they modeled it up like an exogenous commodity shock. And that's what it kind of looks like to us. Not to people who live in Ukraine. That's obviously not the case. But when you're looking at it from a financial markets, it walks and talks like a commodity shock. And it has the same, you know, 12 months, 18 months decay function. And that's kind of where we are now. So from that perspective, not calling for a big market turmoil unless Putin does something. Which is an unknown. Yeah. Uh, here's a question. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, just to remind and bring it back to the funds. We don't take part of the reason in some of these um, kind of episodic exogenous shocks and the emerging markets are, are somewhat unpredictable. We don't take broad diversified bets in emerging markets. We'll take a beta bet in high yield. We take a beta bet in loans. We don't really take a beta bet in emerging markets. We buy emerging markets individually, country by country, company by company, called a rifle shot as opposed to a shotgun approach. So our, our emerging market exposure is really about idiosyncratic risk, not about beta. Uh, question from the uh, app as well. What does bond issuance, so not related to any of this, what does bond issuance look like in 2023? I think supply in the in the corporate markets is going to look like a lot like it did um, this year. So still somewhat challenged on the high yield side. Investment grade markets have been, you know, the run rate's been a trillion and a quarter in the U.S. probably for the better part of the last eight or nine years, and that probably continues um, next year. And then treasuries, you know, we think treasury issuance will net fall uh, a little bit. Um, they'll replace it with a bit more in T-bills. Sure enough, there. Yeah. Just um, it's just because there's so much demand for floating rate right now. Yeah, so they'll hit it. That's all. And deficits are falling dramatically as we speak and unlikely to rise with the gridlock in Washington. Yeah. yeah. You know what we haven't touched on is tips. And you guys had an opinion on tips last time. Where are we on those? Well, inflation protected bonds, the break evens are sub two and a half percent all at almost every maturity. So I think tips are one of those ones where it breaks your heart as an investor in the sense that you thought a year and a half ago, let's say you called for inflation and you bought tips saying, great, I called for 
in Canada, real return bonds, tips in the US. I got this right. And then you look at the year and you're still down 10 or 15%. And it just drives you wild. And you say, what happened? And the hard part with the tips market is it's, 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 it takes real rates. And so you get levered to really long real rates and you get break evens. And so what happened in the tips market in the last 12 months is real rates went up in yield. And so you went from a zero yield to one or two and there's like a 30 year zero you owned. And so you had a negative return there and your breaks didn't really affect you. So it was one of those periods of time when uh, owning tips is actually didn't really make you feel very good. And now tips break evens continue to fall. I can actually see a path to sub 2% break evens on tips. If, if for no other reason is we give up on them a little bit and the Fed still owns 30% and wants to sell. And so the market says we got to back this all the way down so we can find buyers. Wow. And so I would be careful there. It just doesn't do the, the do what you're hoping for most of us most of the time. Uh, we're down to our last five minutes, so I want to get to some longer-term ones. And coincidentally, there's a question in the app. Bonds have not protected on the downside this year. How do you expect fixed income to perform during equity market drawdowns going forward, speculating that there will be? And take a longer term. Let's talk the next decade. Yeah, so like, here's the one thing you have to recognize. If the bond market's going down because the Federal Reserve's jacking rates. Everything on earth is going down because the Fed's doing the damage here. Remember, the discount rate, the net present value of everything falls when rates go up. This is first year math from high school, right? That's what happened. The Fed yanked yields up. And it wasn't that there was diversification. Every market came for a ride with the Fed because that's what the Fed does. They set the price of money in a lot of ways. And so when they're doing the damage, nothing works and we're all correlated because the thing doing the damage is the thing you were hoping is a diversifier and they're doing the damage on purpose. This is the same way it was in 2000, 0405. So unfortunately, longer term, right? You know, we'll get back to the diversification of bonds once the Fed's done hitting us hard. At that point, things can just start working nicely in the marketplace and more and, and government bonds can then be a great diversifier to stocks in a drawdown. But if the Fed's doing the damage that's leading to the drawdowns of stocks, you got a cause and effect problem. That's all. I, we've seen actually that positive correlation continue. It's not just when Fed is, the Fed is inducing volatility, but when the Fed does reach kind of peak rates, say 5% middle of next year and cut, our view was that bonds would do well, stocks would do well, credit spreads would tighten. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing. So we're seeing the correlation on the upside. We've seen that recently. And I would say over the last few days, we're starting to see kind of stocks and bonds move in different directions. So you're, I think you're starting to see, since the market's pivoted, some of that diversification benefit come back into the bond market. And the good news is we've got a really nice starting yield. So there is actually some upside uh, to bonds in the event of an equity drawdown. Uh, we only have one minute left, but I do want to promote your letter that you send out because I know you, one of your priorities is to be transparent and to be understandable. Talk to me about the newsletter and how people should use it. Yeah, so Mike and I write every month uh, a two-pager. A two-pager starts with a big story. We do a quick summary of what central banks around the world are doing. And then page two is our sector themes, a couple lines, and then some quick asset allocation thoughts. And this is our way of communicating with you about where our heads are at because we know how volatile the markets are and we want to tell you what we're doing so that you feel like you're informed what's going in your, going on in your portfolio. We write it ourselves and it's valuable. And, and I was just on with the board of a big state 
just before I came in here, I did their board meeting. And it was the same thing. It's a partnership and that's how we want it to be so that you feel like you're getting a lot of information on the bond market in addition just to owning our portfolios and saying, what the heck's going on today? Perfect. Jeff, Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. These guys are big wigs. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.